welcome to the John Brown University Chapel Podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Dr. Chip Pollard. Dr. Pollard has been the president of John Brown University since 2004. Prior to coming to JBU, he taught English at Calvin College and practiced law in Chicago. Good morning. Welcome to this opening chapel, the fall semester at John Brown University. Obviously, Carrie and I are not here with you in person because I'm speaking to you via this video. We're on sabbatical and I taped this talk back in May before we left. If everything has gone according to plan, we've led a rededication service at Lakeside Manor at JBU Center in Belfast, Northern Ireland with Bill and Mindy Stevenson. And then we've hosted a tour for JBU alumni and friends in Israel and Jordan, including a visit to JBU's archaeological site led by Dr. David, e David Vila. Some of you have been in Northern Ireland and Jordan this past summer, and I would encourage others of you to consider that as being a part of your experience here at JBU over your four years. We've also participated in another study tour with about a seven other Christian college presidents. And currently, again, if everything's gone according to plan, we're at Lakeside Manor, in Northern Ireland, I'm working on a variety of writing projects. Lord willing, we'll return to campus on October 1st. We're very grateful for this time of rest and travel and study and writing, uh, but we really miss being with you in person, particularly at the beginning of the school year and particularly in worship this morning. We always enjoy worshiping with you. But let us turn to our passage today. We're studying the Gospel of John this semester in chapel, and typically we begin, at the begin, we begin at the beginning of the book. But I want to save John 1 for the Christmas chapel. So with Keith's blessing, we're going to start our study of John at the end of the book, in John 21. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, turn with me to John 21.1 and hear the Gospel of Christ. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out to the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Jesus then comes to the shore in the morning. He tells them to fish on the other side of the boat, and they catch so many fish they can't bring them into the boat. Jesus then greets them with breakfast on the shore. So now skipping to verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say unto you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you want, do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death Peter was to have to be glorifying to God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, 
If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We spend much of our life comparing ourselves with others, asking the question that Peter asked about John. Lord, what about that man? It starts when we're young, when we mark the growth of our height, like at a door or on a, on a mantle in the wall in the kitchen, measuring our progress against the progresses of our brothers and sisters. It happens when we play with our earliest friends and notice that they have toys that we don't have, so we just take them. It happens in our first years of school when we become aware that some kids run faster or throw farther or understand fractions quicker than we do. Moreover, when we are young, we are very sensitive and we're very vocal to, issue, uh, to speak about issues of injustice, particularly about ourselves. If our sibling gets an extra scoop of ice cream at night or a later bedtime, we're quick to say to our parents, that's not fair, it's not treating me the same. We don't stop comparing ourselves to others when we get older, we just express it in more socially acceptable ways. We don't steal a toy from a friend, but we might freely criticize how they spend their money. We aren't transparently jealous of a person who understands bio biochemistry, but we point out how much of a nerd they are. We don't admit that we wish that we were as beautiful as a friend, but we might express a prayer concern about that friend who's too boy crazy. Moreover, we spend hours looking at our social media feeds and wondering why we don't have as many likes or why we're not invited to that party or we're not, why we're not as beautiful or as popular or as smart as the people that we follow. Indeed, I too have struggled with this sin of comparison for my whole life. When I was younger, I always wondered if I was clever as the person next to me in law school and as a spiritually committed as my missionary friend and as successful as a college president as the people I meet in the conference. In fact, I was recently at a conference with another Christian, at another Christian college and they had a beautiful campus. And one of my friends, presidential colleague friends, spoke my thoughts when he kept whispering to himself under his breath, he kept saying, do not covet your neighbor's Olympic swimming pool. Do not covet his rock climbing wall. Do not covet his mineral museum, all of which were features on this uh, friend's campus. From our earliest days, we measure ourselves against others to assess our self-worth and determine whether God is being fair to us. It's a deep part of our fallen nature and it can cripple us emotionally and spiritually. As Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. And I would add perhaps also the primary source of anxiety and depression. In John 21, Christ offers us a better way to understand ourselves, to find our identity in Jesus, to know that we are his beloved friends and to follow him. I wanna look at three parts of this story. Uh, first, Jesus called to follow him with all of our differences. Second, Jesus is called to follow him even in our brokenness. And then third, Jesus is called to follow him without comparing ourselves to others. So first of all, Jesus called to follow him in all of our differences. Imagine the situation of the disciples. They see Christ come in Jerusalem and they're expecting a political, perhaps military revolution to set up his kingdom. In less than a week, Christ is dead. And everything they've staked their lives on for the last three years is gone. 
Then, against all expectation, three days later, Christ rises from the dead and appears to them in these short uh, but very real encounters. They're filled with joy, but they're also pretty confused. What are we to do now? How do we follow this risen Christ? When will we see him again? What do we do as we're waiting to figure out what happens next? And what do they do to figure out, waiting to figure out what happens next? They go back to their day job. They go back fishing. There's seven disciples that are in this boat, five of whom are identified. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now think about how different these disciples were. Nathaniel comes to faith in Jesus very easily. Indeed, some might even consider him naive or superstitious. When Christ calls him, Nathaniel asks, how do you know me? And Christ tells him that he said, I've seen you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel immediately declares that Christ is the Son of God. Something happened to Nathaniel under the fig tree that Christ knew about that was so compelling that immediately Nathaniel sees him as the Son of God. Thomas, on the other hand, is at the opposite end of the spectrum. He is a skeptic. He doubts everything, even after the resurrection. And he asks for evidence time and time again for Christ to prove that he is Lord. Consider also Peter and John. Peter is a doer the one who speaks before he thinks, the one who acts before he reflects, the one in this passage who almost comically, if you read it carefully, he puts on his coat before he jumps out of the boat and swims to the shore. John, on the other hand, is the thinker. He's the rationalist. He's the philosopher. Jesus calls people who are very different personality types to follow him. Now, these 12 disciples were all Jewish men, but Jesus did not just call Jewish men to follow him. Very much against the Jewish cultural expectations of the day, expectations that put very little value on Gentiles, they were the the barbarians, or women, Jesus regularly engages with women and with Gentiles. He crosses the racial and gender roles to talk to the Samaritan woman at the well and to protect the woman caught in adultery. He defends and praises both Mary and the the sinful woman who anoints him in oil. Mary Magdalene is the first witness of the resurrected Christ, even though if she gave testimony to that, it would not be accepted in a court of law in the first century. Similarly, in Acts, we see that Jesus' final instruction to his disciples is to give witness of his death and resurrection to the other ends of the world, to all people. Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and the Ethiopian eunuch are some of the first converts to the church. Indeed, Paul declares in Ephesians that the great mystery, the the greatest mystery of the gospel is that it was for Gentiles as our fellow heirs, as members of the same body, as partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus. And John tells us in Revelation 7 that in heaven the followers of Christ will praise him with a new song, singing, by your blood you ransom people from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you made them a kingdom of priests of God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, we know the church has rarely lived up to this multilinguistic, multinational, multigenerational, multicultural vision of the kingdom of God, a fact that causes us to confess and mourn. However, it should be our goal, even here at JBU, to reflect that gospel ideal and the expectation for our future home. Now, Christ just doesn't call people of different temperaments, different personalities, different ethnicities, different languages, different nations. He actually loves them in all of their differences. When he sees the seven disciples in the boat, he says to them, children, 
do you have any fish? Now, the word children is not a great translation. It's really too literal. It's really a term of affection for a friend. So, for instance, if you lived in the United Kingdom in England, you might translate it lads or blokes or mates. Have you caught anything? In the U.S., you might translate it as dudes or guys. Have you caught anything? Christ loves these guys, his friends, with all of their differences. And we should, too, love each other in all of our differences. One of the great opportunities of studying here at JBU is that you can live and study with people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Take advantage of that opportunity and befriend someone who may not be like you, who has grown up in a different part of the world or the U.S., who sees the world or the church and the faith from a different perspective because of their background or their economic experience or their denominational history or their political commitments. In particular, if you often find yourself always in the same group where everybody seems to be the same, perhaps you need to work harder at listening to others here on campus that might have a different perspective. It's so easy to live within our own perspective. In those conversations, all of us need to follow James's advice and be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. We should be quick to hear the questions of others, but also we should be quick to hear how they see the world. You know, civil dialogue is in short supply in our country, and we would do well to practice it here if we really want to see the beauty of the diversity of God's kingdom. You can have these conversations informally in the CAF, in your dorm room or class, but you also want to, may want to participate in the conversations that are called the Imagio Deo conversation that Dr. Ted Song is going to lead this semester. You might be surprised in how much you have in common with people that you think are different than you. And you might well be surprised what you can learn from one another. The beauty of God's children is all around us if we just have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Second point, Jesus calls us to follow him in our brokenness. The second part of this story is Christ restoring Peter to leadership. And the story in John 21 follows really closely the details of Peter's betrayal of Christ in Caiaphas' courtyard. Remember again that story. At the Last Supper in front of all the disciples, Peter makes a characteristic rash claim and he compares himself to everybody else. He says, though all the other people may fall away from you, Christ, I will never fall away. Christ responds by predicting that Peter will deny him three times that evening before the rooster crows the next day. After Christ's arrest, Peter follows him into the courtyard outside of Caiaphas' house and sits down around a fire with others. Three different people accuse Peter of being a follower of Jesus, and each time he denies their accusations. The rooster crows the third time, and Peter breaks down weeping. Now notice the parallels with John 21. Jesus and his disciples are again sitting down to a meal, as in the Last Supper. They're seated around a fire, as Peter had done in Caiaphas' courtyard. Jesus asked Peter three times whether he loves him, paralleling the three times that Christ, uh, Peter denied him in the courtyard. Moreover, Christ asked that question for the first time in that comparative format. He says, Peter, do you love me more than others? So he reminds him of that comparison, reminding him of that rash claim that he made the night before the crucifixion. Peter would have quickly, and I'm assuming painfully, felt these parallels. Jesus asked these penetrating questions as if he was cross-examining Peter. And Peter's grieved by his failure to follow Jesus. 
But the remarkable part of this story is not, however, that Christ exposed Peter's failure, but it's remarkable that he restored him to leadership. After each question about whether Peter loved him, Christ reconfirms that Peter is a leader in the church. He said, feed my lambs, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, right? He wants him to be a pastor, to be a leader of this church. Even as Christ slowly and very publicly in front of the other disciples exposes Peter's failure, he also reestablishes him as the shepherd, as a pastor, and as a leader. Now, why in the world would he do that? In our world, when a leader fails, we ask him to resign and go away. That's not Christ's way. What is the connection between Peter's failure and his forgiveness and his leadership? Peter could not lead others until he recognized how much Christ had done for him. He could not care for others until he recognized how much Christ cared for him. He had to lead out of the awareness of his weakness, not out of his strength. It's not just that he needed to be humbled. He needed to recognize that his identity was first in Jesus Christ. Sorrow, struggle, and failure help us to see not just our weakness, but the immensity of God's grace. And it is awareness of God's grace that enables us to serve him to take the risk to serve Christ, even in the most difficult of our times. No matter what you have done, and you need to hear this this morning, no matter what you have done, Christ wants to forgive and restore you to full relationship to him and to the good work in your life. That is true, again, no matter what you have done. It won't be easy. Christ predicts a difficult time for Peter in the future when he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, You used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. The metaphor of dressing is a bit obscure, so John offers us this parenthetical at the end of the passage to help us understand that Christ is really predicting that Peter will die by crucifixion. The key phrase is that you will stretch out your hands. And we should consider that image for a moment. Literally, it suggests that Peter's arms will be stretched out on a crossbar and be led away to crucifixion. Metaphorically, I think it's also he's suggesting that he should be willing, Peter should be willing to stretch out his arms and take the wounds of this world to be a part of his life. Normally, we stretch out our arms as a sign of openness and welcome. Many of you probably met your friends today and you hugged each other here in the cathedral. However, when we stretch out our arms, we also make ourselves vulnerable to attack. It's why boxers always keep their arms up tight, because they know they could get hit. Christ stretches out his arms on the cross because he is willing to be wounded to save us. And he asks us who want to follow him to stretch out our arms in order to be wounded, in order to serve others. And we can be wounded. We can be wounded by our children, by our friends, by our enemies, by our coworkers, by our neighbors, but it's okay to be wounded in order to spread the gospel and to serve others. You do not have to protect yourselves from the wounds of this world because you know you serve a Christ who will heal those wounds because of his great love for you. Third, Jesus calls us to follow him without comparison to others. You have to love Peter, Okay, because he's just been restored. He's just learned this lesson. He's been restored to leadership. He's gone through these questions. And then he immediately seems to forget that he's been forgiven. And then again, he makes another rash claim about being more faithful than the other disciples. 
sorry, he's been forgiven for that. However, as soon as he hears that he has been, uh, he's been forgiven, uh, and he hears this hard news about his future death, he immediately reverts to his old ways, and he looks at Jesus and he says, what about John? What's going to happen to him? You told me what's going to happen to me, but what's going to happen to John? How is my life going to compare to John's? And Christ looks at him and says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, this is a point that I wish Scripture had a soundtrack because I would love to hear the inflection of Christ's voice as he's speaking to Peter. For most of my life, I've heard this line sort of the way I just said it as a harsh rebuke, something like, come on, Peter, I just forgave you for betraying me. Why are you bringing John into the conversation? Get in line and follow me. Sort of a harsh kind of tone. However, as I've grown older, I recognize often how often I repeat my same failures. How often I'm jealous of other people. How often I try to measure myself and compare my myself to others in order to gain God's favor. And I've begun to hear a different inflection in this particular passage. I imagine Jesus full of grace and gently shaking his head and quietly saying to Peter, why do you still need to compare yourself to others? You have me. I call you my friend. You are a beloved child of the living God. And if you have me, what else do you need? Just follow me and all will be well, even through death. I want to give one final illustration that uh, reminds me of this passage. It's an illustration that comes from C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and the Boy. I'm sure many of you have read it or it's been read to you. The main character, Shasta, is traveling all alone on a night, at night on a road, and he was feeling, it says in the book, he felt sorry for himself, so sorry for himself, that the tears rolled down his cheeks. And then he suddenly realizes that someone or something is walking beside him, and it's in the midst of a fog. And he's terribly afraid because he can't see in the fog and in the dark. He worries that this thing is a ghost. But then he feels the warm breath of the thing on his hands and his face. And the thing says, there, that is not the breath of a ghost. And he looks at Shasta and he says, tell me your sorrows. And then Shasta just opens up and tells the thing his sorrows. The sorrows of being an orphan, of being raised by a cruel fisherman, of being chased by lions at the tombs and in the desert, of being hungry and thirsty and afraid, and then, and then of having his friend Arvis wounded by the lion. He ends by saying, don't you think it was bad luck for me to meet so many lions? And the thing responds, I was the lion. I was the lion who forced you to join with Arvis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses strength of fear for the last mile said you would reach King Luna in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at night, to receive you. And then Shasta says to the lion, then it was you who wounded my friend Arvis. In other words, Shasta makes a comparison. And the lion says, it was I. And Shasta says, but what for? Child, said the voice, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own.
Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice. Three quick things about Lewis's story. First, Christ wants to hear our sorrows. He wants to share our brokenness and pain. He wants to enter into our suffering. So if you're starting this semester and you feel heavy with sorrow, Christ wants to hear your sorrow. And there's here people at campus that can help you with that. It's why he became human to bring about our reconciliation so that we should never be afraid to share with him our heartbreak or talk to him in the dark. Second, if God is sovereign, he is sovereign all of the time. He'll accomplish his purposes both in the good and the bad things in life, both in graduation days and hospital stays, both in new jobs and losing jobs, both in the excitement of beginning college and the struggle of midterms, both in weddings and divorces, both in birth and death. God is involved in all aspects of our lives. He is the lion that brings you into relationships with others. He is the lion that provides comfort and also instills fear. He is even a lion who will inflict deep wounds on us or our loved ones in order to bring about his purposes. We cannot always understand his sovereignty, but I would tell you we can trust it. Third, with Shasta, we may ask why some are wounded in this world. And as Lewis suggests, God responds, responds by saying, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. That answer can frustrate us. But if the God of the universe cares enough to tell us our story, can we have not faith that he will also tell our friends and our family members and our neighbors their story as well? We do not need to compare my story with my wife's story or my kid's story or my friend's story. We just have to trust God that he is telling us our story and living out our story with us. Who is God, Shasta asks, and the lion says, myself. The only answer for God's authority is God's power and his omniscience and his sense of who he is. I would suggest that we remember this truth best, that God is God when we worship together, as you've done this morning. He is Lord who is good, and his mercy endureth forever. And people from every nation, tribe, people, and language, and from every generation will follow him. Let us join that beautiful crowd of disciples and worship him together this semester as we study the Gospel of John. May it always be true of us at JBU. See you in October, Lord willing. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review.